Welcome to St Anthony's Looks at the World, a new podcast from St Anthony's College where we'll be talking to alumni and fellows about how their work and research can help us understand the great issues of our time. My name is Martin Rush, I'm an MPhil in Modern Middle Eastern Studies from 2015 and I'm joined today by Professor Simakai Chigudu, who is Associate Professor of African Politics and he's written a book called The Political Life of an Epidemic cholera crisis and citizenship in Zimbabwe. He's going to be talking to us about the book and also what we can learn from it and apply to our time today. Remember to check our website and on social media for further episodes of the podcast. But for now, over to Simakai to take us through his book. Simakai, thank you so much for, for, for joining us. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. The first thing I think is really important is, is how are you at the moment and how's, uh, how's your family? Is everyone doing well? Uh, I'm doing okay. Um, I'm here uh, in Oxford under lockdown, or at least observing uh, the stringent social distancing measures in light of the pandemic. Um, my family is scattered in different parts of the globe. Um, some are in the UK, some are in Zimbabwe, some are in Uganda, some are in the US. Um, but um, my immediate family is safe, and to the best of my knowledge, my wider family is also keeping safe. Oh, that's really good to know. Um, and how are you coping uh, as, a, as an academic in the, in the lockdown? Um, I think it's been challenging. Um, my sense is, uh, you know, not only from my personal experience, but from conversations with friends and colleagues, that um, it, it sort of alternates between feeling, you know, aspects of the lockdown are kind of pleasant. The um, as the weather improves and the opportunity to be outdoors, um, to spend more time cooking, reading, catching up on movies. Um, and then there's a bit of a dissonance with the other side of this, which is the sheer fear that accompanies um, just the sense of how great this pandemic crisis is, what it might mean for society. And that can, you know, personally feel quite uh, debilitating at times or anxiety inducing, which can make it very hard to work or to think or to concentrate. Um, and of course, that's compounded in day to day life by the loss of normal routine and structure. So I would say that I sort of flip between these poles of feeling in control um, and also feeling um, a bit overwhelmed uh, by what's happening. Absolutely. I think we can all uh, relate to that in some way. But I think you've got a particularly uh, unique perspective on this for two reasons. I think, first of all, because you've written a, a brilliant book about the, the politics of, uh, of, 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 of an epidemic, which we'll come to in a second. But also your, your, your background is, 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 is uh, fairly uh, unique for and uh, probably for a fellow at St Anthony's in that you were a medical doctor before that. Would you like to tell us a little bit about um, about that experience and then how you came to St Anthony's? Certainly. Um, so I come from Zimbabwe, that's where I grew up, um, and I moved to the UK to complete my A-levels before I went to Newcastle University where I studied medicine uh, as an undergraduate. Now, this was a very disorienting uh, experience for you know a young African international student uh, to find himself in a sort of post-industrial northern metropolitan city. It was a world I didn't know or particularly understand. And I remember um, very early on in my first year, we had a very you know, charismatic professor of cardiovascular medicine um, who came to teach us or introduce us to um, cardiac disease. And he said, um, cardiology is the single most important specialty you will ever learn. 
uh, and then add it in a kind of casual offhand way, unless of course you choose to work in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, the implication sort of uh, underlying it was the sense that uh, what really mattered was coming to grips um, with the diseases, uh, the so-called diseases of lifestyle, things like cardiology, respiratory medicine, uh, neurology, diabetes, and so forth, um, which is what we would be seeing in the Northeast. And questions of diseases of poverty, infections, epidemics, that sort of thing, is something that's relegated to a pre-modern past um, that we might find in Africa. And so this really troubled me, it created this sense of uh, displacement, that somehow my medical training was going to leave me out of touch um, with the region of the world that I was from. And so throughout my medical studies, I devoted a vast amount of time to going to global health conferences, to reading widely around um, medicine in different parts of the world. Um, I did an internship uh, for a human rights organization in San Francisco with my portfolio focused on um, Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, I spent time working in South Africa on clinical placements. Um, I also spent um, uh, a chunk of time doing research uh, in Tanzania. And through these experiences, um, I started to develop a, a very sharp um, appreciation for the fact that many of the reasons why people become ill in the first place are rooted in social, political um, systems, and that these systems are themselves um, rooted in a longer history um, and the forms of economy that govern us. Um, and so once I qualified for medical school, actually, I moved to Oxford. Um, I had a brief stint working at the John Radcliffe Hospital um, and in a number of hospitals in the region before then uh, moving to, to London to work in public health for a period of time. Um, and then finally, I decided I couldn't contain my intellectual interests and political commitment to Africa. Um, and so a way of kind of reconciling my world was to move back to Oxford um, to undertake the Masters in African Studies. Um, and it was from there really that my transition from medical doctor to social scientist began in earnest. The MSc became the platform through which I went into my doctoral studies, studying the politics of cholera in Zimbabwe, um, and ultimately, you know, led me into my academic career path as a, a scholar of African politics, particularly interested in the politics of public health and disease on the continent. That sounds absolutely fascinating. And I think that leads us into, in, into your book, which you sound perfectly placed to have, to have written, um, which is about the 2008-9 cholera outbreak mm. in Zimbabwe. But what's really interesting um, is in the title, you've, you, you've, you, you've, you've called the book uh, The Political Life of, a, of an Epidemic. So how, how can an epidemic have a political life? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, so by way of brief background, Zimbabwe's um, cholera outbreak began in August of 2008. Uh, it was mostly concentrated initially in the high-density townships um, that circumvent Harare's metropolitan area. The disease rapidly spread into peri-urban and then rural areas uh, before crossing the country's borders into South Africa, Botswana, Zambia, and Mozambique. Over the course of 10 months, cholera went on to infect nearly 100,000 people and caused well over 4,000 deaths, becoming the most um, extensive cholera outbreak in African history. Now, 
One of the things about cholera is that it's a really simple bacterial infection of the gastrointestinal tract. Um, it's spread through the consumption of food uh, or water contaminated by the, the cholera pathogen, the Vibrio cholerae. But it's really difficult to contract illness from cholera. It's very difficult to spread illness and it's easy to prevent. Uh, we have oral rehydration therapy, which is really a miracle in the annals of modern medicine, a very simple concoction of fluids and electrolytes that can restore a dehydrated body, you know, if administered um, quickly. So no one should die of cholera today. And it struck me when I was observing the events that had happened in Zimbabwe that uh, it made no sense to me how a simple bacterial infection could go on to become such a massive calamity. So in beginning my investigation, trying to understand this outbreak, that was my first question. How could such a thing happen? And as I studied it, I realized I had to go deep into the history of um, Harare, understand how it was established as a colonial center, and the forms of structural inequality that were built up into the city, both um, spatially through the unequal distribution of housing, water, and sanitation, um, and through a very complex legislative regime that um, shaped, you know, who could live in what parts of the city. And there's a certain path dependency to these historical forces. Of course, they then intersected with Zimbabwe's spectacular political economic crisis that began roughly in the year 2000 and preceded apace um, in the early part of, of, of this millennium. Um, and so all of that to say, that the makings of the outbreak were really, really complex and located deep within history. And so the book then became about, well, what is the life cycle then of an ep epidemic? We go into history to understand its origins. Then once it's occurred, I became interested in tracing the politics of how different institutions and communities responded to the outbreak. How, for instance, the Zimbabwean government, the opposition and international humanitarian groups collided with each other in their attempts both to shape the narrative about the outbreak and to delineate the appropriate response. And then finally, I was interested in the aftermath of the outbreak. What legacies did it leave in public institutions and in civic life? And so here, when I was studying the outbreak, I was looking at um, how cholera entered popular memory, how people would talk about it and discuss it, um, what it signified about that moment of social suffering and how it's reshaped state and citizen relationships. So in summary, the political life of the epidemic essentially tells the political story of what happened before, during and after the outbreak. Well, that sounds uh, really uh, timely. It seems like we can learn a lot from that and maybe apply it to, to today. But before we do that, I mean, um, did people at the time, did people at the time see the the epidemic as a political question as they were going through it? Mm -hmm. That's a good question. Um, and. Um, the answer is yes, absolutely. Um, I'll give you um, two examples, one from elite, the level of elite politics um, and the other from the politics of everyday life. So at an elite level, um, you had a kind of flurry of international commentary from journalists, news media outlets, think tanks, uh, and even foreign governments basically saying that um, the cholera outbreak was an unconscionable crisis in Zimbabwe that had been presided over by the nefarious political regime of Robert Mugabe and the ruling party ZANU-PF. 
And through these accusations, they claimed that Mugabe was no longer legitimate as the president of Zimbabwe and should be removed from office. So that was kind of one version of events. Now, parts of the Zimbabwean government um, offered a very belligerent and even vitriolic repost um, to this kind of commentary. Uh, the Minister of Information at the time um, came out uh, at a press conference and said that cholera is a calculated racist terrorist biological attack by the British and their American allies to undermine Zimbabwean sovereignty and to install their stooge, i.e. the opposition, um, into government. So in this sense, at, at a very elite level, um, it wasn't long before cholera stopped being just a microbe, just a bacteria or even an, um, an infection or an epidemic. Rather, it became a terrain on which questions of sovereignty, self-determination and nationalism played themselves out. Now, at the everyday level, people were living with cholera in the aftermath um, of some of the the most extreme um, political violence the country had witnessed within two decades, as well as a very severe economic crisis uh, manifest as hyperinflation, food insecurity, um, and energy um, shortages. And so cholera became further evidence for many people of the shortcomings of the ruling party, um, as well as a deep suspicion um, as to uh, you know, um, why their lives had been and livelihoods had been rendered so precarious. Um, so rumors were circulating that it wasn't the British that had launched biological warfare in Zimbabwe. It was, in fact, the ZANU-PF government trying to poison its own people as a punishment uh, for turning against them in, in the elections that had happened earlier in that year. Uh, and so, again, we see this dynamic where cholera as a microbe is endowed with new meaning as it enters human context. And all of these different ways of thinking about cholera are fundamentally political. They're about um, claims to legitimacy and authority, they're about public welfare, and they're about the distribution of resources. In the book, of course, I go into much greater depth to show um, the different facets of these politics, but I think this is just an initial illustration. Well, it sounds like the book that we need to read at the moment, because, I mean, uh, you must be looking at uh, the situation across the world. And I guess you must have a, a, a little bit of a, an understanding of why it's being politicized. Why, why, I mean, some people would say that the, 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 the coronavirus is being politicized. But I guess you would, you would say it's always a political question mm -hmm. in terms of um, how it's dealt with and, and, who, <laughs> and, and who's uh, the, the, the politics of sort of... Uh, of, of, of the virus. I mean, when you look at America, for example, mm -hmm. at the moment, and you see that uh, it's become a partisan issue, um, uh, the, the question of the lockdown, the question of uh, recovery, um, I guess that wouldn't surprise you. No, not at all. Um, I think, it, in fact, it's quite hard to wrap one's head around the politics of Corona because of how global it is. Yeah. Um, so latching on to your example of the United States, um, of course, the fact that it coincides with um, an electoral cycle um, where the incumbent is a deeply unpopular or problematic president uh, for a number of reasons. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it's no surprise at all that in the, in the States it has become such a partisan issue. Um, the other dynamic that's happening in the US, of course, is it's bringing out new tensions to uh, the constitution of a federal republic, wherein we see state governors, whether that's in uh, Michigan or uh, in New York, uh, taking very proactive leads on how to manage it, not necessarily um, 
following the, the lead of um, the executive branch. Um, so this kind of multi-scalar thing that's happening both at the tension between um, federal government and state governments, as well as between Republicans and Democrats. But what I would say um, is that, you know, these outbreaks uh, tend to be politicized in very specific kinds of ways. They tend to be um, put politicized around the question of um, origins, you know, where did this outbreak come from? Now, um, Donald Trump has been tried to shift or deflect attention away from any um, causal role the US might have played, say, by way of um, economic globalization, and instead frame this in what are really quite pejorative terms about the Chinese virus and so on. Um, epidemics also are then politicized about the appropriate distribution of resources. They're politicized about the role of coercion and control, particularly when it comes to measures such as quarantine. Um, and so we have this sort of Tea Party-like popular protest that Trump has been encouraging um, as protesters demand the end to lockdown. You know, so there are all of these different facets to how epidemics become uh, politicized. And in many ways, um, the themes are quite predictable, even if how they play out in more specific terms uh, is quite specific from one situation to the next. Absolutely. And as you said, this is almost uh, unique in some ways in just terms of how global this one has become. But in terms of, uh, we come back to Zimbabwe in 2008-9. What was the kind of impact um, on Zimbabwe's institutions and Mm -hmm. its culture uh, after the crisis? And of course, um, how, with with coronavirus also reaching Zimbabwe, how are kind of, um, how are things different or similar today, Mm -hmm. do you think? That's an excellent question. Um, So there's a long running debate in sort of um, uh, sociology of disasters literature about whether, uh, you know, potentially disastrous moments uh, in society um, can be a tipping point, a tipping point wherein after a crisis or after a disaster, um, you know, life can change. Um, a social contract, for example, might be reinvented uh, on the one hand, or an anxiety that pre-existing inequalities become reinforced, made more trenchant. Um, And in the case of the 2008 cholera outbreak, the story I tell is ultimately quite um, a bleak one, at least at a macro level, because I argue that, okay, yeah, there was some institutional change and some learning for that outbreak, but the fundamental power structures in the country didn't really shift. Um, for a combination of political calculus and strategy between, you know, the main political parties, um, the savoir-faire of the president, the coercive arms of the security sector, and so on, the fundamental political alignment that shapes Zimbabwe has remained intact, and the scope or ability for ordinary to people, ordinary people to challenge it, is somewhat diminished. Um, and so that's meant. Moving to the second part of your question, that. Um, many of the sort of structural um, risk factors for an outbreak of that nature have remained intact. So the cholera outbreak spread so rapidly because of overcrowding in many parts of urban centers, lack of clean water and sanitation and food insecurity, as well as a very beleaguered health system. Many of those conditions remain um, in place today. And the anxiety that... um, as many Zimbabweans have in the health sector and the Ministry of Health, is that um, coronavirus yields devastating uh, pandemic or epidemic potential. Um, One 
prediction from epidemiologists is that we could see as many as 50,000 deaths in Zimbabwe. Uh, that's a projection and it's founded on a bunch of assumptions that may or may not hold out to be true. And I think that what that tells us is that the lag time, as it were, um, that we have at the moment from seeing the damage that COVID-19 as a disease has wrought in many other parts of the world really, really necessitates um, a rapid forward-looking mobilization of healthcare personnel, a strategy for procuring necessary medical equipment that can be used in local context, and thinking about um, the appropriate use of fiscal space to mitigate the worst effects um, of the lockdown, and then fundamentally the, the appropriate health messaging around hygiene and behavior. Um, and so that hangs in the balance. And if, if the government can act quickly enough to address all of those issues, we might be able to mitigate uh, the impact of COVID-19. And if it doesn't, then we're going to see history repeat itself. And I think that returns us kind of to, to, to something really interesting you said at the start of the conversation about how uh, a, a virus or an outbreak is sort of overlaid onto existing sort of social political structures and, and maybe inequalities. Um, what chances are there that we can build a new uh, world out of this uh, virus, do you think? Um, I think that question hangs in the balance. Um, what I would say is I think I'm, uh, I'm kind of buoyed up to see increasingly um, public discourse that we can't go back to normal because normal was the problem. Mm -hmm. So if we were to think about the political life of the coronavirus, um, it invites us to think, well, what, what kinds of society have we created such that so many countries should feel this vulnerable? Um, how do we evaluate, how do we value um, so-called, you know, highly skilled or essential workers? You know, how do we create these divisions um, uh, in our categorizations of labor across the country, because it is, after all, um, many people in working class communities that are keeping us going at a time of lockdown. Um, how do we value uh, not only the NHS in terms of, say, in the UK, in terms of, say, front-facing healthcare staff, but all of the public health strategic thinking that goes on behind the scenes? Um, how do we think about um, the forms of economic precarity that are going to emerge as a result of the, the um, lockdown. Um, and so I think there is an understanding that the way in which we organize society before simply can't sustain us. And this is where politics really matters. We need creative, imaginative, compelling people out there in the present, um, building collective forms of solidarity and articulating um, an imaginative and progressive a message of what a better world might look like. And if there is any silver lining to be taken from um, this COVID-19 tragedy, for me, it's that. Well, thank you very much. And it, it, sound, it sounds to me that uh, if, 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 if uh, listeners are looking for a book that can help us really kind of uh, locate this current crisis and, 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 help, and help us understand some of the social, potential social, political consequences and cultural consequences, of course, then I think um, we've got a great uh, contender here in, in, in your book. And I'm so proud that, uh, you know, you're at St. Anthony's doing this work. Um, do you have a message for our alumni across the world? Well, firstly, thank you just so much for the kind words. It's really been a pleasure um, to talk with you today. And um, St. Anthony's has been... Um, uh, it's been a joy for me to join St. Anthony's. It's a, it's a rich intellectual community. And I think for alumni around the world, because we're such an international college, many people are um, dealing with this virus in 
contexts that are often really, really challenging and maybe struggling with um, isolation um, and fear about what the future holds. And I think we should just be thinking about the ethos um, that St. Anthony's can represent at its very best, one of a globalized, intellectually engaged and politically motivated citizenry. And that's something that we can access through our alumni network and be part of this wider project of, you know, reinventing the world for the better at the end of this crisis. Dimakai, thank you very much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Well, we're really grateful to Simakai for joining us, and I hope you agree that there was some really interesting, enlightening comments there about how his research on Zimbabwe in 2008-9 can help us uh, understand the, our present circumstances. And that's a really good example of how the research at St. Anthony's can really help our understanding and help give us some of the lessons that we need to learn about how we can actually come through these uh, crises and, and, and build a better world. That's the kind of research that St. Anthony's does. And I'm really, really proud to be part of it. Um, join us for future podcasts. Check our website. Check our social media. We'll have more on the way. We're really, really grateful for any any feedback or suggestions. Uh, email us at alumni.office at sant.ox.ac.uk. But for now, hope you're all keeping well and look out for future podcasts coming soon.